um, thank you very much for coming along to this Cambridge Festival of Ideas event. Um, we're very pleased to welcome Hannah Johnsma, who is our speaker today. Hannah is um, BSRC postdoctoral fellow at the UCL Division of Psychiatry, and before that, um, she did her PhD in Cambridge. And Hannah's work focuses on the social epidemiology of psychotic disorders. I should have said beforehand, very sorry to break up the introduction, and we are going to house the February of it all um, experts at every single corner. Um, take away out any of those. Delighted to welcome Hannah. Thank you very much. We'd like to welcome her. Nothing was to be seen but a circle of trees. 
begin to think about space. I have no money to talk. I have no, no space for that plastic. And now that they have made peace, they don't want me anymore. So I see that I, have, I shall have to start. All at once, he heard a rustic. And when he looked around, a strange man stood before him. He wore a green jacket and looked very stately, but had a hideous cotton suit. I know what you are, my young friend, said the man. Gold and possessions you will have, as much as you can make away with. But first, I must know that you are fearless, so that I won't be thrown on one of my bones. A soldier in fear? How can they go together? answered the soldier. You can put me to the proof. Very well, then, answered the man. Look behind you. The soldier turned around and saw a large bear, which came to, which came to, which came growling towards him. Oh! cried the soldier. I will tickle your nose, so you, you will lose your fancy for growling. And he aimed at the bear and shot it right through his mouth. It fell down and it never growled again. I see quite well, said the stranger. You are not wanting in courage, but there is still another condition that you have to fulfil. If it does not endanger my salvation, replied the soldier, who by now knew very well who was standing by him, if it does, I shall have nothing to do with it. You will have to see that for yourself, answered the green coat. <coughs> Yet you shall, you shall, for the next seven years, neither wash yourself, nor comb your beard, nor your hair, nor cut your nails, nor say the Lord's Prayer. I will give you a cloak and a coat, which during this time you must wear. If you die during these seven years, you are mine. If you remain alive, you are free, and rich as well, for the rest of your life. The soldier thought of the great extremity in which he now found himself. As he so often had gone to meet death before, he resolved to risk it now too, and agreed to the terms. The devil took up his green jacket and gave it to the soldier, and said, If you have, to have this coat on your back, and put your hands into the pocket, you will always find, find it full of money. Then he pulled the skin off the bear, and said, This shall be your cloak, and your bed too, for you shall lay only on this bed, and in no other bed. And because of this apparel, you will be called Bearskins. After that, the devil disappeared. The soldier put the coat on, felt at once in the pocket, and found the things he needed. Whoops! He pulled on the bearskin and went forth into the world, and enjoyed himself. We refrained from mocking that it did him good and his money harm. During the first year, his appearance was still passable, but during the second year, he began to look like a monster. His hair covered nearly the whole of his face, his beard was like a piece of coarse felt. His fingers had claws, and his face was so covered with dirt that if crust had been sewn in it, it would have come off. Whoever saw him ran away, but as everywhere he gave money for the poor, so the, for he gave money to the poor to pray that he might not die during the seven years. And as he paid well for everything, he still always found a shelter. In the fourth year, he entered an inn, where the landlord would not have him and would not even let him have a place in the stable, because he was afraid of horses and that. But, as bear 
put your hands into his pockets and pulled out a handful of sit-ups. The hostess started to say this and gave him a rude and out-hand. Bearskin was, however, obliged to promise not to let himself be seen, lest the inn should get a bad name. As Bearskin was sitting alone in the evening and wishing from the bottom of his heart that the seven years were over, he heard a loud lamenting in the neighbouring room. He had a compassionate heart, so he opened the door and saw an old man weeping bitterly and wringing his hands. Bearskin went nearer, but the man sprang to his feet and tried to escape from him. At last, when the man perceived that Bearskin's voice was human, he let himself be prevailed on. And by kind words, words Bearskin succeeded so far that the old man revealed his corpse to him. His property had dwindled away by degrees, and he and his daughters would have to starve. He was so poor he could not even pay the innkeeper, and he was about to put in prison. Well, if that is your only trouble, said Bearskin, I have plenty of money. He caused the innkeeper to be brought in, paid him, and put a purse full of gold into the poor old man's pocket. When the old man saw, saw himself set free from all his trouble, he did not know how to be grateful enough. Come with me, he said to Bearskin. My daughters are all miracles of beauty. Choose one of them as a wife. When she hears what you have done for me, she will not refuse you. You do look a little strange, to be sure, but she'll put you right again. This pleased Bearskin well, and off he went. When the eldest saw him, she was so terribly alarmed and spake that she screamed and ran away. The second stood still and looked at him for a while, but then she said, Sorry. How can I accept a husband that is no longer in need and poor? The shade and bear that was once here and passed herself off for a man suits me far better, for at any rate it wore a husband's dress and white gloss. If it were, no, were nothing but ugliness, I, I might get used to that. The youngest, however, said, Dear father, that must be a good man who has helped you out of your trouble. So if you have promised him a bride for doing it, you promise me to return. It was a pity that Bearskin's face was covered with dirt and his hair was loose, for if not, they might have seen how delighted he was when he hurt those dirts. He took a ring from his finger, broke it in two, and gave her one half. The other half he kept for himself. He wrote his name, however, on her half, and hers on his, and begged her to keep her feet carefully. And then he took his leave and said, I must wander about for three more years, and if I do not return, you are free, for I shall be dead. But pray to God to save my life. The poor bride dressed herself entirely in black, and when she thought of her future bridegroom, Tears came into her eyes. Nothing but contempt and mockery fell to her lot when they kissed it. Take care, said the eldest. If you give him your hand, he will strike his claws into it. Oh, beware, said the second. Fears like sweet things, and if he will take a fancy to you, he will eat you up. You must, you must always do as he likes, began the elder again, or you will die. And the second continued. But the wedding will be merry, for bears do dance well. <laughs> the bride was silent and did not let them get to her. Bearskin, in the meanwhile, travelled about the world from one place to another, 
The good part he was able and gave generously to the poor because it gave much hope to him. At length, the last day of the seven years dawned. He went once more out on the heath and seated himself beneath the circle of trees. It was no long before the wind whistled and the devil stood before him and looked angrily at him. Then he threw his bearskin and lord's coat and asked for his own green one back. Ah, we haven't quite got that far yet, said bearskin. You must first clean me up. Whether the devil wanted to or not, he was forced to fetch water, wash bearskin, comb his hair, and cut his nails. After this, he looked like a brave soldier and was much handsomer than he had ever been before. <laughs> <laughs> when the devil had gone away, Bearskin was quite light-hearted. He went into the town, put on a magnificent velvet coat, seated himself in a carriage drawn by four white horses, and drove to his brother's house. No one recognized him. The farmers looking for him soon discovered him, and led him into the room where his daughters were sitting. He was forced to place himself between the two orders. They held him to wine, gave him the best pieces of meat, and thought that in all the world he had never seen a more handsome man. The bright, however, sat opposite him, in her black dress, and never raised her eyes nor spoke a word. When at length he asked the father if he would give him one of his daughters to wife, the two elders jumped up, ran into their bedrooms, to put on their most splendid dresses, for each of them fancied that she would be the one. The stranger, as soon as he was alone with his wife, brought his half of the ring and threw it in a glass of wine, which he reached across the table to her. She took the wine, but when she had drunk it, and found a half ring laying at the bottom, her heart began to beat. She got the other half, which she wore on a ribbon around her neck, joined them, and saw that the two pieces fit perfectly together. Then he said, I am the bridegroom, who you've seen as bare skin, but through God's grace I have again received my human form, and I have become what you see. He went up to her, embraced her, and gave her a kiss. In the meantime, the two sisters came back in full dress, and when they saw that the handsome man had fallen to stare at the youngest, and heard that it was bearskin, they ran out, full of anger and rage. One of them burned herself in the well, and the other hanged her on a tree. Hanged herself in a tree. In the evening, evening, someone knocked at the door, and when the bridegroom opened, it was the devil in his green coat. He said, See? Now I've got two swords instead of one of yours. <laughs> Before I go into that, I think it's important that I clarify um, what psychological class this story is about. And I think this is important because that is often why a lot of misunderstandings happen. Psychotic disorders are recurring health disorders characterized by people's disconnect from reality. And schizophrenia really is the most well known one of those. It's 
There's often manifested hallucinations, which is perceiving things in clear conscience that have no objective-based reality, and delusions, which is persistently holding false beliefs uh, despite evidence to the contrary. Examples of hallucinations are things like feeling your phone vibrate in your pocket even though it's on airplane mode, um, hearing someone call your name when that definitely didn't happen, hearing voices inside your own head, or seeing verdicts vibrate in your body. Some of these are really quite mundane and everyday, but some of them are potentially more threatening. Examples of delusions can be believing that MI5 is after you, that your partner is being replaced by an imposter, or that you are in China. Hallucinations and delusions are known as positive symptoms, and that's not because they're fun, but because they're characterized by their presence. Negative symptoms of psychopathy is usually what attends that type of psychological action, which is probably what you're interested in. Um, and these are things like inability to experience pleasure, um, or lack of motivation, etc. These things are much more of a broader concept of depressive disorders, but they're also present in psychopathy. And finally, people with psychotic disorders often experience um, quite severe cognitive symptoms, such as memory problems and general lack of organization and guilt. And these are not officially, officially part of any clinical diagnosis, but people with this experience often report that these are um, kind of the most devastating in terms of going about their day-to-day life. So now that we're all kind of clear on what psychotic disorders are, I can explain to you why I think the story that I prefer is such a good metaphor. Both are really, in their essence, appeals of rejection by society. Bernstein didn't really have a great background, did he? His parents were dead, his brothers had nothing to do with him, he just lost his job. And this caused him quite a few misdirections. Um, childhood trauma, social isolation, birth issues with his status. He's also a man, and men are much more likely to develop schizophrenia, at least young men, maybe later in life. Um, Sebastian was also shunned and feared by everyone, and this is, uh, this is quite often the case with people with severe mental illness too. People with uh, schizophrenia are really quite often unemployed and can have quite a low quality of life, even if their hallucinations and delusions disappear. Social inclusion and kind of the prospect of were really important for Bernstein to kind of get his act together again and be able to fulfill his quest. And this is true for people with severe mental illness as well. And we all now know Bernstein's full story, so including why he was wearing a bare skin. So we wouldn't call him mentally ill, would we? So, but what would we do if someone walked through that door, if someone would walk through that door with this giant fur coat claiming he's made of Africa's desert? We'd probably all visit him slightly bewildered and think that he's already become quite freaky. But depending on his demeanor and how persistent he is, you know, we might call the authorities and he would probably be locked away quite quickly, I think. And Bernstein might be quite an extreme example, but a lot of mental illnesses and other spectrums can be interpreted as a failure to interact with the social world. And I'm not using this word failure here to apportion blame on the I really think it's more the other way around. Society failed to appropriately incorporate Bernstein. If Bernstein's the obvious why schizophrenia is associated with anxiety, seeing and hearing things that others don't and believing things that nobody 
and it can be really difficult when a loved one is in the middle of something and, and you just feel like you can't get through to them because they're doing something wrong. So depression as well is associated with a lot of social differences and social impairments and also depression. A very important diagnostic criterion for really any psychiatric disorder is a degree of inability to perform your social norms and normal standards. You're not ill until it causes you distress or it inhibits your daily functioning. For instance, there's a group of people who regularly hear voices in their own heads that are just perfectly happy with that and will reject anything from anybody. And this leads me, and probably you to some extent as well, to wonder who decides what's what. It's a bit hard to say that, isn't it? <laughs> who decides what is normal anyway? I think that's quite a tricky question to answer. But I think the answer is something to do with society as a whole, and maybe it's just unfortunately like what we know from research. But regardless of who decides what's normal, what how does someone end up in a state of severe mental illness? How does someone become a bearer? This again is quite a tricky question, and one that we as mental health researchers have been trying to dot into the bottom of the sea. What I do, what we do know all mental disorders are multi-causal. There's not one sufficient and necessary cause to progress to a state of depression. And for me, the most helpful way of thinking about this is to point at the cause of it. I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here, but there's a book that I read um, called Taking Care of Yourself. <laughs> and so I hope it's not bad. The idea of cause of pain rests on the crucial premise that what we normally think of as cause is only a component cause and is a small part of a bigger whole. Say I've had a house fire and I've burnt my house down. Well, the fire brigade might tell me that the cause of that is the fact that I left the house down and I was sleeping quiet and I went to bed. But really, that is only half the story. We all know that. The fact that my landlord installed a faucet and smoke detector, that my cushions were not sprayed with flame retardant spray, and that I had no sprinkler installation definitely also plays part in causing me to have my house burn down. I could have replaced this handle with a gas canister or a faulty wiring, but the effect would have been exactly the same and I still wouldn't have been here. Just like you can try and make a cake of many different ingredients, you usually need some kind of flour, some kind of fat, some kind of sweet, and a binding agent, but this can be any type of flour and any type of fat. And I think, I don't just like cake. I think this cake analogy is really helpful for thinking about causality in severe mental illness. There are many component causes of cake ingredients, what we as epidemiologists would call risk factors for developing schizophrenia. And they range from really very social to very biological. So genetic variability, birth complications, vitamin D deficiencies, having a low IQ, being bullied or experiencing childhood trauma, being born or living in the city. I always just just have to say because I always start by saying being born, which is obviously you know you can't develop schizophrenia without being born, but I mean being born in the city. Um, that's a particular risk factor. Being young, being a man, belonging to an ethnic minority, being socially isolated, smoking cannabis. But not everyone who develops schizophrenia or a psychotic disorder will have experienced all of these ingredients. 
expect everyone to have kind of their own unique recipe. And all of these are also ingredients with many more tastes. Those of you familiar with Sigler cooking will be associated with toast of bad cover, anodyne essentially over the years. Also, as I was going through the list, all of you probably have identified some of these that I've mentioned. We all carry a liquid I was born premature in, in reach position. I didn't really plan to be born. I was delivered at home by a beautiful little coffee maker in my late in the 20s. So it's really a miracle that I grew up to be this tall. Um, <laughs> but also, I never really fitted in in school, and I spent four years living in London, and I also didn't expect to have to eat. But I also have a number of protective factors. I've got a close, confiding partner. I don't think I have a low IQ. I'm relatively The main misconception that we encountered was the sense that the mentally ill are not us, that they are other, different from the normal. But any psychiatrist will tell you that that is not true. Very little separates the mentally ill from the normal ill. A genetic vulnerability here, a childhood trauma there, one love too many, and just like that, we switch places. It doesn't take much for anyone, you and me included. We've also all experienced kind of states of being within their extremes might be a mental illness. So I've been quite nervous about giving this talk for a while, and I kind of considered faking being ill this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and an extreme avoidance of social situations is social anxiety. After a bad breakup or loss of a pet or even loss of a loved one, we've all had times where it was incredibly difficult to get ourselves going and to just get out which if it lasts long enough is pretty much clinical depression. We've also, like I said, all suffered from vibrating off the equipment, definitely an outside mode. Mm -hmm. And as teenage girls, we all thought that we were all a bit gossipy bastards. And these can quite easily become a happy experience for some reason. Well, not quite easily, but these can become experiences <laughs> for all. And I think that thinking of mental illness this way, and something that kind of could happen to any of us, very helpful for destigmatizing <coughs> and for illustrating it might just be through the extreme end of the normal distribution we all fall in. Seeing people with mental illness as the slightly more extreme version of myself has definitely made me more understanding of people suffering from mental illness or not. And I think this point of view is really helpful for the mental health discussion. And I'm going to get now I'm going to get a little bit more
mathematical properties of that dictate that most of us fall kind of in the middle, within a few scattered individuals in the community. In other words, there are a lot more people doing some mild treatment in mental illness than there are people with more severe illness at all. If we can kind of shift the whole population curve a little bit more towards being well, that might lead both to the extremes being a little bit less extreme, and in it will make the majority of people better off. I think looking at mental illness at the extreme end of such a normal distribution is very helpful. But I also think we should be really quite careful. And I think there are a lot of a lot of you know, options and drawbacks to this view. The first one is not necessarily a drawback of this view of mental illness, but kind of of all the work that's been going on to destigmatise mental illness. I think this is wonderful and really important work and really should continue. But mental health services in this country are completely scratched in that and already really quite human and rich. So we really have to start wondering how helpful and how ethical all this talk about coming forward with your problems is in the extreme setting where you work. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's really important. In my opinion, the view of mental illness at the extreme end of a normal distribution is kind of an oversimplification, and it also trivializes the very real illness of those who are at the extreme end of the spectrum. If you're a statistician, or if you try hard enough, you can think of anything as being a normal distribution, even the bad news. I have been screened positive for the HPV virus almost every time I've had my smear done. And I've had quite a lot of smears done because I've been screened positive, so I can use it as a fact. But that's quite a way away from developing cervical cancer. There is a link, definitely. But to say that I've got a bit of cancer, that really goes quite far, I think. Same with mental illness. Being able to get out of bed for no reason despite wanting to is a key symptom of depression. But that isn't the whole story. It's not just about the symptoms, but also about the disruption and disruptions in your life history. People with lived experience often find the view of mental illness at the extreme end of a normal distribution really quite offensive and trivializing. And I think this is for really good reason. Having a bad day is not the same as having severe depression. Having to have your shoes in the right order and your kitchen sink clean <coughs> keeps some things clean as well. It's not being a bit OCD. And saying that, that really ignores the immense suffering and the intrusive thoughts that come with those um, obsessive behaviours and those who do suffer from OCD. And I think this is a really poignant kind of language that we use. From talking about Suicide Sunday here in Cambridge to describing a situation that got a bit out of hand and mental, or a person whose behaviour we don't quite understand is a psycho. We're all, we're all guilty of doing this with a smaller or lesser degree, and that's myself included, and more of us. But we don't do that with physical illness. We, we don't just like think of people as cancer and in such. We would really consider this quite offensive to people who suffer from this. And maybe we should think about extending this courtesy to people um, subject to severe mental illness. So all in all, I think it's really quite helpful and really absolutely necessary to make our mental 
sure they're like, yeah, I do it all the time. And the beauty isn't that difficult, because we get it right with physical illness all the time. You just can't do it. So while I hope that you all go away now being a bit better equipped to openly talk about mental illness and a bit more understanding of all the bad things in this country, I really do also hope that you learn to just see serious things like diagnostic opinion and, and, and things that, that require clinical treatment or anybody with a no, disorder. Yeah. No, so um, this is being recorded, so I will repeat all the questions in a little bit. So the gentleman has come to our state to make the statistics about one in four people being affected by mental illness is any mental illness or kind of the more severe end of the spectrum. And this is kind of any diagnosed, any diagnosable mental illness. So it's not necessarily yeah, but it is a diagnosis. It's severe enough to be diagnosable. Yeah. So, uh, the person who knows was told that he has a mental illness. How much this knowledge can aggravate this ambitious cycle where he just gets trapped into saying, "Oh, I'm mentally ill," and let's just make things worse. I mean, like all people, most of the time, are capable to kind of detach from the state. So the question is whether an illness label makes someone's experience of their illness worse or better. I think for a lot of people, they're all, it's the same with most things. You're unwell before, long before you get diagnosed. So for some people, it can be really helpful to have that diagnosis and to have that kind of um, uh, the prospect of treatment and to potentially be able to kind of rebuild your life with it. But for some people, the diagnosis might shift over time, and it's not necessarily because psychiatrists don't know what they're doing. This is because there is generally there's a lot of overlap in all of the mental illnesses. So this is, can be a general course of the illness, and that can be incredibly confusing. So I think for some people it's really helpful, but not for everyone. Does that make sense? Is, is there any statistical kind of? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't characterize that as a normal distribution. I think I think it is a normal. I think it is to a large extent. Most biological traits are normally distributed, and I think states of mental being are, are quite similar. But you know, this is we. It's not to say that that it's not a normal distribution, but just seeing it that way is a bit limited, because even things like um, things like high blood pressure and stuff, they're all like beautifully normally distributed, but it only becomes a problem after <coughs> a certain threshold when we don't really care about it beforehand. Um, so to say that you, you're, you're a bit OCD, that might be true, but it kind of ignores the fact that people who do have severe OCD, it's not just having it a bit worse, there is a lot that comes with that that is ignored by seeing it that way. Does that make, am I making sense? Yeah. Where that exactly is, is probably up for some debate, but I do think there is a point where, where even when, you know, when it becomes really disruptive to people's day-to-day -day life. Um, and will you agree that part of the problem can 
language you you use in the sense that even agreeing whether to use the term mental health condition or mental illness or sexual is um, contested. <coughs> and whatever term this is, it tends to be very elastic, so we can be stretched in our playing with that term. So yeah. that makes it harder for us to talk accurately about the subject. It does, and, and it's also, it can become, it's, which is quite a lot, what is the appropriate term to use, whether it's, you know, because for a long time people tried to talk about uh, mental health conditions because that would make it more accessible, which is true, but people who are quite severely ill find it quite offensive because they are quite severely ill. So now we're okay to talk about mental illness, but people quite often don't want to be referred to as patients. So it's, it is, the, lang the whole language I think is quite developing quite a lot still, but it can make it quite tricky. So the question is whether people saying a bit OCD is actually a reflection of a reduction in stigma. I think it is to some extent. I think it is. It has definitely, even in this, because I've only been working in this, in this for about four or five years, and even in that time, I have seen a real shift in how often mental, mental illness is talked about. But at the same time, I think when people say, oh, yeah, I'm just a bit OCD, but they only refer to a very small part of the illness and it, they don't necessarily understand the illness and its kind of full manifestation. And there are still terms that are used to describe people that are really quite derogatory, particularly terms like psycho or schizophrenic or, um, you know, particularly words to do with schizophrenia are still often quite really quite offensive and I usually also mention that way people particularly talk about women as being a psycho or you know there's quite there's quite a lot of intricacies into it so I think to some extent yeah it may have been more normal it may have been a bit of a reflection but does that make sense yeah really cure uh, most mental illnesses 
so that treatment is actually just trying to cope with the symptoms? Not necessarily. So I don't know very much. I mainly, so my research is mainly in psychotic disorders, which particularly schizophrenia has always it's got quite a grim view people have of it. Once you're diagnosed with it, you're kind of stuck with it and your life will deteriorate, which isn't true at all. About half of people will only have ever have one, maybe two psychotic episodes, and after that are able to keep their life back up again. And quite a lot of people will have intermittent episodes, but in between that can be really quite well. And I think that I think this is the case for um, other disorders as well. Some can be more chronic; they can be more chronic, but they don't necessarily have to be. I think it's about time that we end it, but I will be around. So if everyone, anyone wants to have a that last question. Thank you all for coming.